This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Apparatus of Qualish. We here at the Word of the Week have explained this several times before. We love a good historical gaming mystery. Specifically, we love being asked to track down the origin of a particular piece of gaming esoterica. It's never easy. We're not saying it is. And we end up having to guess a lot, like we did when we explored the origins of Kosath and the Cloak of the Mountebank. And sometimes, the answer is wholly unsatisfying or just completely non-existent. That's what happened when we tried to figure out why mayonnaise ended up in Dungeons and Dragons. But it's still fun, because we never quite know where the journeys are going to take us. So when someone mentioned the apparatus of Qualish during our monthly patron-only live chat, did you know that if you support the show on Patreon, not only do you help ensure that we actually keep making the show, you also have the opportunity to sit in a chat room on the internet and listen to us talk about the show and sometimes even to suggest ideas because we run out of ideas a lot. Sorry, latent plug, we know. But we rely on your support, and we definitely rely on a constant influx of ideas for these shows. Anyway, we've talked about the apparatus of Qualish before in our Legs episode. But it had to share space with Baba Yaga, and we weren't entirely comfortable with that. So when someone mentioned the apparatus of Qualish during our monthly patron-only live chat, we knew we'd have to do our best to run that one down again. It raises so many questions. Why is there a robot lobster in Dungeons & Dragons? Who thought it was a good idea? Who was Qualish? And is there any precedent for robots and automatons in mythology that we can use to pad out the word count? Well, we know some of the answers to those questions from the previously mentioned episode. But we don't know all the answers yet. So let's recap. Now, the apparatus of Qualish is an infamous magical artifact that has been in the Dungeons & Dragons game since 1979. It appeared in the first edition of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide, written by Gary Gygax, edited by Mike Carr, and with a famous cover illustration by David Sutherland III, showing a scantily clad damsel in distress in the arms of an equally scantily clad 18-foot-tall scimitar-wielding demon, while a fighter and a magic user stand foolhardy in its path. Man, the game art back then was just awesome. But we digress. In that tome, the apparatus of Qualish was described as an innocuous-looking iron barrel with a secret catch which opens up on one end. Should an adventurer discover the catch and crawl inside the barrel, he will discover ten levers. Each lever has a specific function, which the adventurer must discover through experimentation. Some open viewing ports in the front and sides of the barrel. Others cause legs to extend under the barrel and make the barrel scuttle around. One extends pincer claws and feelers. One makes it float and sink in water. There's even a light switch. When the proper levers have been attenuated, the adventurer discovers that the apparatus is a clockwork submersible robot lobster. Well, sort of. It isn't really a robot at all. It's not even an automaton. Apparatus is a good description as any, really. But the origins of these words are actually a bit complicated and unusual. And these days, people nitpick about the meaning of words like robot, android, and automaton, despite the fact that their origins and meanings are pretty hazy. Take, for example, the word robot. 
That word was pretty much invented by a Czechoslovakian writer named Karel Čapek. Born in Bohemia in Austria-Hungary in 1890, Čapek traveled around Europe for several years. He studied philosophy in Prague, Berlin, and Paris. But by 1917, a spinal disease he'd suffered from all of his life was starting to take its toll. So he settled in Prague and focused on writing. He wrote novels, short stories, plays, essays, and news pieces. And he became enamored of a genre of fiction that had really started to come into its own at the turn of the century. Science fiction. Now, speculative fiction was not a new thing. And it had its origins in fantasy adventure stories, of all things. In fact, the great Greek epic poems and adventure stories were really the first sort of science fiction. Sure, today we separate science fiction and fantasy into two separate genres. But even that is a very recent development. See, the earliest adventure stories were tied directly to mythology. And mythology existed to explain real-world phenomena like the origin of the world, where storms and earthquakes come from, and why humanity even exists. Such adventure stories were actually on the forefront of what passed for the scientific study of the universe. What's interesting is that fantasy stories kept pace with human exploration and discovery. Stories about strange beasts and foreign continents were inspired by actual exploration and discovery. And with the discovery of each new frontier, be it a new continent or an entire new world like the moon, stories soon followed about exploring those places, what we'd find there, and how it would change the world. In the 15th century, though, such speculative fiction followed the important discoveries of the day into a new era. During this period, the beginnings of the Renaissance, social and political philosophy and theology became important areas of study in Europe. During this period, Sir Thomas More invented an entire genre of speculative fiction when he published Utopia and explored radical social ideas like divorce, euthanasia, and diversity of religious practice, as well as marriage for male and female priests. Although he was beheaded for his radical ideas, he was eventually canonized by the Catholic Church 400 years later and sainted by the Church of England 50 years following that. So that story has a happy ending which is nice. And because he planted the seeds for utopian fiction and its counterpart dystopian fiction, we have him to thank for those Hungry Games books and movies, as well as for John Stuart Mill's 1868 exploration of the concepts of dystopia. And Mill's stuff is almost as good as the stories of catnip Hungry Games. Science fiction as we know it today wasn't truly born until 1818. In that year... Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, a teenager, laid down the real foundation for the modern genre while participating in a challenge with a number of poets and writers to write a horror story one dark and stormy night. Shelley's story, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, stripped her fantastic story of all fantasy elements. She set the story in real locations, caked it all in scientific dressings, and basically invented the classic Real world, but with one little thing altered, foundation for science fiction. And her story was based on the real experiments of a real crazy person, Luigi Galvani. Luigi Galvani was a lecturer and scientist at the University of Bologna. He'd been working in obstetrics at the time, but he'd also been experimenting with how eyes and ears worked. This was before scientists specialized in things, you see and Galvani tended to drift from subject to subject. During a chance incident in a lab, so the story goes, 
an electrode came in contact with the leg of a dead frog Galvani had been experimenting on. The frog's leg twitched, and Galvani got excited. From that point on, the subject of his research became trying to reanimate the dead. See, Galvani was convinced the twitch was caused by some sort of vital fluid that flowed throughout living things that reacted to electricity. After a thing died, the fluid would dissipate. But he theorized that if you could shock the lingering fluid enough soon enough after death, the thing would come back to life. Now, another scientist, Alessandro Volta, from whose name we get the unit of electrical potential known as the Volt, suggested that maybe muscles and bodies just work on electricity. But Galvani knew that was crazy. There was no electricity in living things. There was magic fluid that was excited by electricity that caused life. Electrical signals in living things? Bah! Unfortunately, Galvani never managed to bring a frog back to life. But he did document his research. And eventually, he even had a physiological phenomenon named after him. The galvanic skin response. Basically, that refers to changes in the skin's resistance to electricity based on physiological responses, and it's one of the things measured by modern polygraph machines. But that wasn't Galvani's only legacy. He also had a nephew who was legitimately a mad scientist. Giovanni Aldini knew that he could use his uncle's research to bring the dead back to life. Not just dead frogs. No, he was going to bring a dead person back to life. Now... Aldini had been obsessed with electrocuting the dead for years. He'd shock sheep, cows, cats, anything really. And he loved to do it for an audience. Man, did he ever get a response when he made sheep's eyes open and their heads convulse and their tongues flail and... Well, we're going to leave out some of the really unpleasant things he did. He shocked every part of the corpse audiences. But what he really wanted was a human corpse. The trouble was, corpses for scientific experiment were pretty limited. And Aldini was, well, he was not the sort of person any legitimate scientific authority would trust with a rare and valuable scientific human corpse. He can sort of see where the authorities might be put off by a man screaming that he can bring back the dead with the power of lightning and then sticking electrodes into a cow's unmentionables while a crowd gasps and cheers. The other problem was that the primary source of scientific cadavers was the execution of criminals. And in Italy, they were still beheading criminals. So Aldini traveled to England, where they hung their criminals. That leaves a nice, intact dead person. And he got a hold of a body eventually. George Foster... He had been convicted of murdering his wife and child, and he was hung on January 17, 1803. And Aldini, who had convinced the Royal College of Surgeons to let him try to bring back the dead murderer with electricity, hooked Foster's corpse up to his machines. And that corpse did one heck of a jig for the gathered surgeons and officials. It opened its eyes, twisted up its face, its mouth opened, it lurched and flopped, and this went on for Hours. At one point, the corpse's diaphragm spasmed and it seemed to take a breath. 
and then the battery in Aldini's device went dead. And Foster stayed dead. So much for electrically stimulated artificial life. But one witness to the event, Anthony Carlyle, was convinced that Aldini was onto something. And so Aldini became a frequent guest in the Carlyle household, where Carlyle and his poet and philosopher friends would have endless discussions about reanimating the dead. Meanwhile, the household's children, including one Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, would hide behind the couches and listen. And thus, science fiction was born. Of course, it wouldn't be called that for many years. See, the word science didn't exist. That's also why Aldini and his uncle weren't called scientists. They were generally called euphemistic things like natural philosophers. But Master William Wool of Trinity College decided a new, better term was needed for people who studied science. That was in 1834, and he settled on scientist. It comes, by the way, from the Latin scientia, which means to know. In 1851, author William Wilson coined the phrase science fiction. But we digress. The point was, in 1920, Carol Chapek wrote a play about a scientist who figures out a way to create artificial people. They're like humans in most respects, but more precise and reliable. At first, they were created as servants, but eventually they came to dominate the human race and threatened it with extinction. And he needed a name for his servants, which, by the way, were not mechanical. They were mostly biological. They were, in fact, very human. Ultimately, Chapek's brother, Joseph, a painter who'd illustrated some of Chapek's books, suggested a word based on a Czech word for forced labor, robot. And thus, the play Rossum's Universal Robots gave the world the term robot. But robots, or rather artificial creations that can move or act on their own, aren't new ideas. Even then, in 1920, in the Czech version of Terminator, they weren't new. They were actually really old. Really old. Way, way back, the ancient Greeks told stories about the automata of Hephaestus. Now, Hephaestus is a pretty well-known name in Greek mythology. He's sort of a second-tier god. He's the one you talk about after you talk about the big names like Zeus and Athena and Ares. And Homer, in his early science fiction stories, the Iliad and the Odyssey, talked about his origin. He was the son of Zeus and Hera. Yes, he was an actual, legitimate son of Zeus and his actual wife. Fancy that. The trouble was, he was born crippled and deformed, so Hera threw him from Mount Olympus and into the ocean. And while we admit that Zeus was kind of a jerk in their marriage, this sort of shows that Hera was pretty monstrous too. The two of them deserved each other. Anyway, Hephaestus was rescued by a sea nymph, Thetis, and a titan, Ionome, and they raised him on the island of Lemnos and he became a master craftsman, and the gods were so impressed by the amazing weapons and armor and shields and lightning bolts he made at his forge that they invited him to live on Mount Olympus as the god of metalwork, smithing, craftsmanship, and volcanoes. They threw volcanoes in, we guess, because they're kind of like forges. 
Anyway, Hephaestus was such an amazing craftsman that he could make things that would move on their own, and these things were called automata, or self-movers. The most famous was Talos, a giant brass statue filled with burning oil. Talos protected the island of Crete by hugging his victims against his burning body. His only weakness was a bit of living sinew and flesh near his right ankle. Hephaestus probably got the idea of a single vital weakness located in the back of the ankle from Achilles. It had worked out great for him, right? Anyway, Talos was eventually destroyed when the hero Jason and his crew of Argonauts landed on the island and Medea helped them attack the weak point for massive damage. Or, alternatively, when Jason spotted a stopper that plugged into Talos' ankle, unscrewed it, and all the magical hot oil drained out and left Talos inanimate. At least that's the version we saw in the classic 1963 adventure film Jason and the Argonauts, directed by John Chaffee, or as we call it, the Harryhausen film. Now, if you don't know who Raymond Frederick Harryhausen was, then shame on you, fellow gamer. Because you should. Harryhausen was a special effects artist back when that meant actually building and sculpting things instead of waiting 16 hours for a computer to render a prairie dog or some swinging monkeys to ruin your latest Indiana Jones film with. Harryhausen pioneered the use of stop-motion animation. Here's how it works. You sculpt a model of something, and you take a picture of it. Then you move it a tiny little bit, and you take a picture. Then move it a tiny little bit, and then you take a picture. And you do that for hours and hours. And if you play the pictures back in rapid succession, it looks like your thing moves. Now, Harryhausen was inspired by the dinosaurs of the 1925 film Lost World and by the ape in the 1933 King Kong to begin experimenting with marionettes and puppets. He started making short films in his parents' garage. At 18, he happened to meet a noted animator, Willis O'Brien, who pushed young Harryhausen to enroll at the Los Angeles City College and the University of Southern California. He studied film, art, animation, and anatomy. And all of it paid off when he developed a technique he called dynamation to allow human actors to appear to interact with animated models. He won multiple awards and had numerous successes that include It Came From Beneath the Sea and One Million Years B.C. But it was his work on the Sinbad the Sailor adventure films and the two great Greek epic adventures Jason and the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans that we know him best for. His ability to create artificial movement and artificial life on screen was unparalleled at the time. Watching those films with our father was a formative experience for our young gamer minds. Speaking of automata and puppets in films adapted from ancient Greek mythology, we're sort of obliged to mention Bubo here. In the original Clash of the Titans from 1981, with visual effects by Ray Harryhausen, the hero Perseus is given several gifts by the goddess Athena, who has blessed his quest. Among them is a coupon good for three timely plot revelations, a magical sword, and a robot owl. Yes, a legit robot owl. Supposedly, the owl was crafted for Athena by Hephaestus, which makes sense. And the name, Bubo, derives from a species of European eagle owls, and they comprise the largest modern species of owls in the world. 
They are notable for their tufted ears. And the owl was the symbol of Athena for both its keen sight and its wisdom. It all checks out, but it was stupid and annoying and totally out of place for a fantasy adventure in ancient Greece. At least, that's what we'd be saying if not for Archytas of Tarentum, an esteem-powered pigeon. You heard that right. Back around 375 BCE, there was a mathematician named Archytas. In the mathematical family tree, he came two generations after Pythagoras, but he came before Euclid, and he was a contemporary of Plato. And he did a lot of work on the mathematics of pitch and harmony, alongside his work on geometry. He also wrote a bit on legal theory, because, again, this was before the term scientist existed, and before anyone specialized in anything. He also built a steam-powered automatic bird, which he called the Flying Pigeon. It was basically a wooden body that was vaguely bird-shaped with wings projecting out either side. Inside, the thing had a bladder connected to an open hole in its beak. Basically, he'd hook the thing up to a boiler, and the boiler would fill the bladder with steam. Eventually, there'd be so much steam that the pressure would launch the bird off the boiler and propel the bird through the air. The wings allowed it to glide for a very long distance. Okay, so it wasn't a robot. It was more like one of those water rockets we played with as a kid before the invention of the internet. And fun. But the ancient Greeks were actually doing a lot with steam at the time. And engineering, and mechanics. Most famous among the Greek inventors was Hero, who invented a spinning steam engine called Hero's Engine, and also various water clocks and other self-moving automata. Perhaps the most impressive, though, was Philo of Byzantium's robot maid. She, the maid was filled with pipes and tubes and springs and utilized the up-and-coming science of pneumatics. She could pour wine into a cup that had been placed into her hand. She could even mix different amounts of two different liquids into the cup. But of course, the Greek Empire didn't last forever. If it had, they probably would have gotten around to robot owls, stop-motion animation, and the Terminator movies in short order. But what does any of this have to do with the apparatus of Qualish? Well, it does sort of justify a clockwork mechanical monster in a fantasy adventure setting. But it doesn't give us any real insight into the origin. And that's because no one remembers where it came from. Qualish was the name of the character of one Tim Cask, an editor who worked at TSR in the very earliest days of the game. And that's not uncommon. Most of the proper names from the early editions of Dungeons & Dragons refer to the characters played by the game's creators and their friends and family. Morden Kanan, for example, belonged to Gary Gygax's son, Ernie. Finally, in a forum post a few years ago, someone got around to asking Tim Cask about the apparatus. Cask was surprised that anyone remembered the name of his magician character from back in the day. He didn't know the apparatus had been named after him, or included in the Dungeon Master's Guide or who had created it. He shrugged it off and said it was probably just another one of those in-jokes like the Sword of Kos. So, we have to end our exploration there. And to wonder just what the in-joke behind the Sword of Kos was too. Meanwhile, 
If you find your player characters need a mechanical lobster puppet to stop motion their way around the fantasy worlds with, now you have one. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>